Well, good morning, everyone. That freshness that you feel in the air is because of hard work of so many people this, this weekend to get this campus ready for the fall. It was so fun yesterday to see everybody buzzing around and getting things cleaned up and all the carpets have been cleaned and the rooms have been cleaned and we filled a dumpster of stuff out there, kind of clearing things up. Kind of just an outward sign of what we hope is an inward reality that we're being refreshed by the Lord as we prepare for a fall schedule at school and the church with all kind of different activities going on. You heard of some of them just a few minutes ago. You look in your bulletin and there's all kind of activities that you can be part of as well. So please be in prayer uh, during these weeks as we launch these new groups, these new strategies, as we reach out to a church, a school community with lots of kids coming from an unchurched background, it's an opportunity for us to continue to have a growing impact in our community. Well, during one of his political campaigns, a delegation called on Theodore Roosevelt at his home in Oyster Bay, Long Island. And wanting to appear to be a man of the people, the president met them with his coat off and his sleeves rolled up, and he said, come on, gentlemen, let's come down to the barn and we will talk while I do some work. And once they arrived at the barn, Roosevelt picked up a pitchfork and looked around for the hay. Then he called out, hey, John, where's all the hay? And a voice rang down from the hayloft, I'm sorry, sir, I ain't had time to pass it back down after the last group was here. He wanted to appear to be a man of the people, but his works were not really what they appeared to be. As we come to this next part in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns his disciples that there will be false prophets, there will be false confessions of faith, there will be false works. And even a brief look at the New Testament shows that in almost every book there is a warning against false teachers, false teachings, and challenges to make sure that the readers and believers are truly in the faith, truly trusting in the grace of God alone, for the glory of God alone, because of Christ alone. The history of the church is that there have always been false prophets and false teachers. It it will be the case, unfortunately, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and great glory. In addition, there have always been false confessions of faith. So Jesus provides us with a set of instructions for recognizing those who are truly of the Lord and those who are merely pretenders, either because of willful deception, such as those with false prophets, false teachers, or sometimes even worse, through self-deception, through spiritual blindness of those who think that They're okay with God, but they're living lives that are far from what God would expect. So today we're going to hear a warning from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he would call us to listen carefully and to search our hearts deeply as we study this passage together. So I invite you to stand one more time with me as we read God's word today, as we prepare to learn from it. Our text will be today Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23. And the truthful and powerful word of God says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. 
but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let us pray. Father, what a frightful passage. But we thank you that you're giving it. And now would you guide us to understand it? Because, Father, more than anything, we want to leave here this morning knowing that we have met with the living God and that we are learning and loving you more, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So would you be our teacher now in these moments? Would you open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that Jesus Christ would be glorified? As we pray in his name, amen. Please be seated. As you follow along in your sermon outline, we come to our first major point, which is beware of false prophets. And I want to give a good morning to those that are joining us online. Thank you for being with us this morning. I know who some of you are. It's been a pleasure to visit with you recently. Open your Bibles with us this morning, and let's study God's word together, and hopefully we'll have you back with us very soon. Our text begins this morning with beware of false prophets. It begins with a command. Because the word here, beware, means to stay alert, pay attention, observe what is happening. And this command continues with the pattern that we see in many places in the Old Testament. Where there were many warnings that people would come who would try to mislead the people of God. And they're scattered all throughout the various prophets. In my own Bible reading time, I'm reading through the prophet Jeremiah. And there's all kind of warnings given to the people of God. But Jeremiah himself is warned, and he is calling the people of God to be warned that false teachers are there. Now, it is true that there were many enemies of Israel that were from outside of Israel. We might think of the Assyrians or the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites. But there were also many enemies who came from within Israel themselves. And so God would have to call up prophets, raise them up. Send them out in front of his people to call them to turn away from their idols, turn away from their false gods, turn away from immoral behavior. Stop following false teachers who would seek to lead them astray. He also has harsh words for false shepherds, for false teachers who are tempted to misuse their position and mislead the people of God into all kind of bad practices or bad beliefs. And because it's on my mind, I think of Jeremiah. And even as he is giving warning after warning, he complains to God. He said, every time I raise my voice to warn the people against their sin, there are dozens of false teachers that rise up against me and tell me that what I'm teaching is not true. And so when God was preaching judgment to come, these false prophets are teaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. We notice that Jesus, as he teaches, loves to use illustrations from life all around him. He's used examples from... The animal kingdom in recent paragraphs. This morning he's going to use examples from the realm of agriculture, from the law of the harvest, to help us to determine truth from error. 
And as even if you read the passage this morning, perhaps in the back of your mind, you heard the words of John the Baptist who was announcing the coming of the Messiah. He said, he is laying the ax at the root of the tree. The sign of judgment that the Messiah would come and be the one that would distinguish truth from error and help us discern what is right and wrong and be the ultimate judge. And so this morning, Jesus is warning us about false prophets, and he wants us to understand their character, their nature, their way of operating. And so the first thing we see is he says they come with a ruse. They come with a ruse. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. If we study the the Old Testament, if we look at what are the tests of a false teacher, there are many ways that we can determine whether they are true or false. One is they'll predict things that do not come to pass. We do well to remember that in these days where even on our television screens today, there are would-be prophets who predict certain things that will come to pass that do not. And then we're reticent to call them false prophets. And yet we have the test in the Word of God that if they predict things that do not come to pass, they are to be considered false. Secondly, they teach things that are not true. Or they abuse the truth to get to something else that is not true. They mislead God's people into wrong teachings or practices. Or in their own lives, they're hypocrites where they are immoral or unethical in their behavior. Oftentimes these false teachers are a combination of all these things. But they work hard to insert themselves into the church to gain the ears and eyes of God's people, oftentimes to gain their wallets as well. They long for power and influence. They attack the true servants of the church. They attack the the, the history of the church. They claim to speak in the name of the Lord. They exaggerate to draw large crowds. And all they usually don't come in with their flags flying and saying, I'm a false teacher. They come in with their own ideas, trying to win over others to their cause trying to become leaders in the church. The sad reality is often they're successful. They're the ones that draw large crowds. They're the ones that rally people around themselves. And as I've said, they're, they're in abundance today. And we need to be discerning about the messages we listen to, about those that we read, about those that we might follow. We might ask the question, why is it then that there are so many false teachers? There's many reasons why. That would be another study that we could enter into. But often it happens because the church is seen as a safe place to gather. Because that's where hurting people come. That's where needy people come. That's where people come looking for some type of blessing, encouragement, a source of strength. And so maybe people can slip in or not as scrutinized as they need to be. There's this idea we want to trust those that name the name of Christ, and so we might let our guard down. Often these false teachers are good communicators, or they have big personalities, they're attractive personalities, and they, they challenge, and they push, and they prod. They sneer, they mock. You, you've seen some of the videos out of such teachers. So Jesus uses the illustration this morning of the sheep and the wolves. We know that wolves are there not to help the sheep but to feast on the sheep. And Jesus says they're coming. And he won't be the only one. The Apostle Paul does the same thing as he has his last meeting with the, the, the elders at the church of Ephesus. He calls for a special meeting as, as he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And he sent, spends an entire chapter, Acts chapter 20, warning the elders that the wolves are coming. And warning them what the wolves would be like. And he said, look, they're coming with dangerous ideas. 
And of course, one of those dangerous ideas is they pretend to help the sheep. They pretend to feed the sheep when they're actually feeding on the sheep. These false teachers do not seek to water and refresh the sheep. They thirst for them. They're ravenous, Jesus said, to use the sheep to their advantage. Oftentimes, they deny key doctrines of the faith, or they, they distort them just enough to make it sound acceptable to our ears. And oftentimes, what we need to realize, it's not so much what they say, it's what they don't say. They often pass by important cardinal doctrines so that they can prop up their own special revelations that they have received from God. And so it's a clarion call for us today. We need to speak clearly who we are, what we believe, what we do, how we live. It's kind of disconcerting. You can go out and go into an area. Let's say you're moving to a new area and you want to find a good church. It's becoming more and more the reality that churches on their websites start to hide what they actually believe. Hide who they actually are. Their statements of faith are not bold and easy to access. Or they hide behind pithy sayings. They don't really say who they are. The culture needs the exact opposite. The culture needs us to be a clarion prophetic voice of truth saying exactly who we are. Exactly what we believe. Exactly who God is. Instead of dumbing down our statements of faith, instead of making it easier and easier, we should make it clearer and clearer who we are and what we believe because we stand on the authority of this book without compromise, without fear, and without apology. The church is not to become like the culture. The church is to be an agent that speaks truth to the culture and calls people out of the culture into the kingdom of heaven with a new way of living, a new way of loving, a new way of teaching, a new way of serving. And we need to be people who rally around the truth. Oftentimes we're told today, well, you know, truth, truth divides. So let's just all get along. You know what? Let me say something this morning. The truth does divide. The truth makes clear who's in, who's out. The truth makes clear who's right, who's wrong. The truth does make clear who will be with God forever and who will not. And those come right from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can do no better and we should do no less than to declare the truth. Because while it is true that the truth divides, it is equally true that error can never unify. So don't fall into that trap. Better to be in the light, better to be on the path of truth, better to be accused of something and it's actually true than to be wishy-washy and be pushed along by every wave of wind and doctrine as we're warned about in the scriptures. Beware, Jesus said, of false prophets. Beware of those who want to use the church for their own ends. Beware of those who would take advantage of God's people for their advantage. There's a famous leader who made use of Christian vocabulary. He talked glowingly about the blessing of the Almighty and the Christian confessions which would become the foundation of his new government. He pretended to have the earnestness and the weight weighed down of the historic responsibility of his position. He talked about pious stories as he released them to the press, about his contact with the church. He showed his tattered Bible and declared that he drew strength from it for the work that he would want to do. And many in the church welcomed with open arms as God's man who would come in and save the country. And Adolf Hitler was a master of outward religiosity with no inward reality. 
who was a false prophet, a false teacher, who abused and misused the church for his own political ends and gains. And while it might be true that false prophets today are not quite as audacious or quite as obvious, they can be equally as deadly. They come with a ruse. But secondly, they can be recognized. Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. It's a good statement from Jesus. The warning here is that we are all prone to false teachers, and so we need to look at their fruit. Look at their lives. Analyze how they live, how they talk, how they decide. Do they look any different from the people of the world? But are we able to do that? Are we in a position where we truly can understand truth from error? And the plea goes out then that we would be people of the word, that we would be in the word, and the word would be in us. Because we need to discern, we need to pay attention, we need to be sure. Because eternity is at stake. William Barclay talks about a thorn bush called a buckthorn that has little blackberries that at least at a distance look a little bit like grapes. He then says that there is a thistle bush that resembles figs at least from a distance. So we need to pay attention to what we are seeing, to what we are hearing. Get past the superficial resemblance of the true and the false. If it was that obvious, we wouldn't fall for it. So we need to know what it is we're truly looking at. What it is that truly is behind the teaching. What it is that's actually being presented so that we can see the difference between the buckthorn berries and true grapes. What is just a weed that is harmful and what is a grapevine that produces delicious fruit. This would have been important, of course, an important analogy in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in first century Palestine where grapes and figs were an everyday part of their diet. Such is still the case. We spent 16 years in the Middle East and there were many meals that had grapes and, and figs and, and tomatoes and other things that were grown locally. They knew the good from the bad and they knew that it was important to have good eating for the physical health. Is it not also helpful to have good eating for the spiritual health? Jesus says that we will know the false teachers from the fruit of their fruit, from the true nature of their fruit because trees only produce what is natural to them. And so do people. With what the lips speaks, my friends, Jesus said, has already been in the heart. The lips speak the overflow from the heart. That's why Jesus continually calls us back to the heart, to repentance, to deep reflection, to consideration of the fact that we have deceived ourselves and we've been deceived by others and we need to continually ask God to do that heart operation. Because conduct reveals character whatever one may claim with his words. And the gospel transforms. The gospel changes. The gospel animates. The gospel produces fruit that is repentance, that is a life of humility before God, a life that recognizes, wow, if God doesn't show up, this is going to be a mess, and lives in that light every step of the way. The life of repentance leads to a growing hatred of sin, not to the fostering of it or the justifying of it. It leads to greater conversion, not to a continuity of the same way of doing things. We'll know a tree by its fruit. 
And a healthy tree, spiritually speaking, is one that is rooted in Christ, led by the Spirit of God, instructed in the Word, and obedient to the Lord. It's a tree that shows truly the root that it has. As we study the behavior of Christians, even in our own culture, from places like Ligonier Ministries that survey how Christians live in light of what they claim, we see that many Christians live in a lifestyle that is inconsistent with their claim of being a Christian. And we need to take that seriously as we examine our own lives. In light of what Jesus is telling us in this passage, if someone lives in a consistent pattern that is not in line with producing fruit, keeping with repentance, we need to ask why. And maybe even consider the possibility that such a person is not yet in Christ. Though he thinks he might be. For several years we worked in, in West Africa and there was a man in the church that was particularly hard. He constantly criticized the spiritual leaders. He judged harshly the works of others. His ways were always the best. In fact, they were the only way to do things. If it wasn't done his way, he was always against it. If he wasn't involved in it, it was never good enough. He was a man of unending passion. He was a man of unending energy. But he did not have the wisdom and humility to use those things well for God's purposes. As a result, he burned almost every relationship he had. I sometimes wonder what happened to, I'll just call him JB. I lost track of him after we completed our time of service in West Africa, but I thought about him this week as I read this passage. You'll know them by their fruit. He was one who would go around boasting of his accomplishments. He lied on his resume about what he had done. He got job after job by deception, and then he would determine who he really was. Most of his children turned against him because what he lived and what he professed just never quite got together. President Daniel Aiken of Southeastern Seminary says that we need to avoid what he calls the deadly mathematics of false teachers. What are the deadly mathematics of false teachers? They're ones that add to the Bible, subtract from the works of Christ, multiply the requirements of salvation and divide the people of God by a divisive and destructive spirit. May that never be said of us, my friends. May we never be accused of having this deadly mathematics, but always be ones led by the Spirit of God and the truth of His Word that leads to proper multiplication and growth of the body that God is building all around us through the church. May we be those who through self-denial and sacrifice, a passion for the love of Christ, who've been so touched by his mercy and kindness that we're all about the business of causing the church to grow and everyone in it. Lastly, if they, are, if they have a ruse, they can be recognized. Thirdly, they will be ruined. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. And then jumping down, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There are good and there are bad trees. I'm privileged to know some experienced logging families, but I don't know anything about logging myself. But one thing I do understand is that pruning trees produces more fruit. And that getting rid of dead wood and bad trees is good for the overall health of the trees around them. Jesus says it's not going to end well for these bad trees these false prophets, these false teachers, the ones who do not bear good fruit. They'll be cut down 
and thrown into the fire. It's a sign of judgment and destruction and the righteous action of God against those who impugned his name. And so with that, it's time to reflect. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been making an appeal to his listeners to get to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart, to keep examining who we are. He tells us he's the proper interpretation of the law. He tells us how to properly live out this righteousness we have in Christ. Now in chapter 7, he's teaching us how to interact and respond with one another. If we understand that the soul of a person produces what is really in it, we will have an understanding of how we go about changing behavior. It can't be done in an external manner. It has to deal with the root of the matter so that we'll understand the fruit. Think of the illustration of the Christmas tree. Many of us every year, we cut down these great big beautiful Christmas trees and they're in our living room. And yet, they're dead. But we hang pretty things on them. Making them look like they have a type of fruit. But it's false fruit, not consistent with the nature of the tree. And there are those who claim to be Christians and have a semblance of fruit on them. But what is the source of that fruit? It ultimately is coming from their own flesh. Coming from the world. Coming from the devil. It's not fruit that is being produced by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who produces his fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It leads to the encouragement and the maturing and the helping and the growing of the saints of God. Whereas the deeds of the flesh lead to greater division or conflict or anger or hatred or dissension of various sorts. As Pastor David Platt says, either you have repented of your sins and Christ has changed your heart and you're producing love, joy, peace, patience, and the good fruit of the Spirit, or you're still trusting in yourself and rejecting Christ. There is the fruit of the Spirit. There are the deeds of the flesh. There are those fake berries that can look like the fruit, but they're not the true fruit. Now, it's at this point the gospel comes rushing in because ultimately our righteousness is in Christ. Ultimately, he is our source. He is the one in whom we must be rooted and grounded so that we will grow. And the reality is that even as we are growing in grace, even as we are producing fruit, even as God is working in our lives, there's still room for a lot more growth. Because we're still all, we still all have some fruit that is flawed. Some fruit that is less than perfect. And with the sufficiency of Christ and the promise that he will work in our lives that leads us to confess our sins daily. To call them what they are, sin. To repent, to turn from them, to trust in the grace and power of the Holy Spirit so that we'll be cutting away. He will be cutting away the dead wood, the dead fruit, the false fruit so that we're being pruned and ready to produce more and more good fruit consistent with the tree that we say we are. So what would the trajectory of your life look like over the past year, five years, ten years? however long you've been a believer. Is it a trajectory that shows a pattern of growth? Is it a trajectory that shows a greater love for the Lord now than it has before? A deeper obedience to his word, a greater affection for his people, a greater interest in reaching out to those around us, a willingness to bend the knee before Christ more than ever before. 
Is there a breaking of sinful habits? Is there a producing a production of new and good habits that's pr producing greater spirituality? Is there transformation taking place? Jesus says we will know each other. We will know false prophets. We will know who is true by the fruit that we see. So we need to humbly go to the Lord and say, would you continue to work in us and through us so that we will demonstrate more and more the grace that has touched our lives. Beware of false prophets, Jesus said, and then beware of false words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those words should chill us to the bone. Jesus makes clear that there can be false conversions, false confessions of faith. According to the word of God, salvation is God's doing from beginning to end. It is completely by grace because of Christ, appropriated by faith for the glory of God alone. And we dig down into the word and we find out that even repentance, even faith, even conversion are gifts from the Lord. We are so utterly dependent upon him. And unless he's working in us, but once he is working in us, he commands our response, he commands our obedience. And so Jesus says, beware of false words. It's not just what's on the lips, it's what's in the lives. And so he says, beware of presumptuous knowledge. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a unique thing, particularly in the Old Testament, where you want to emphasize something in the word. They may not have the, what we call adjectives and adverbs, so they have to repeat a word to emphasize it. So, you may recall Jesus as he's teaching, and he would have been teaching in Aramaic, and he would have said, Amen, Amen, en verite, en verite. He repeats it, truly, truly. Or we think in the Old Testament when people have had an encounter of the living God, what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. When you want to emphasize the truth of something, you repeat it. Well, when it comes to personal relationships, to use a person's name twice or their title twice implies that there is a sign of personal knowledge, personal relationship, personal intimacy. And there's at least 15 occurrences of this in the Bible. We're not going to look at all of them, but we will look at some this morning. In Genesis 22, God has called Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And just as he is about to plunge the knife into his son, God, God cries out and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. And we find out later in the scriptures that Abraham was referred to as a friend of God. One of the patriarchs, one who was in an intimate relationship with God. And in this act of faith, Isaac was spared. The line of promise continued. A few chapters later, in Genesis 46, Joseph is in Egypt. And his father, Jacob, hears about it. And now he's prepared to go, but he hesitates. The text tells us he hesitates to go. He's so used to what he's had. It's hard for him at his age to pick up and go. And so the Lord appears to him and says, Jacob, Jacob, go to Egypt and I will make you a great nation and bring you back. And God is emphasizing his personal, intimate relationship with Jacob and is calling on him. And he says, go to Egypt. 
or you will stay for 400 years until you are brought home to the land of promise. As God prepares to lead the people back from Egypt, he raises up a shepherd by the name of Moses who is taking care of some flocks out in the desert. And in Exodus 3, God appears to him and says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. He reveals himself to Moses as the I am and informs him that Moses is the one who would lead the people back through the Exodus back into the land of Canaan. After the people return to the land, they unfortunately do exactly what God said they would do. They, they fall into sin, and the sin affects even the priesthood. The house of Eli is corrupt. The sons are immoral, committing all kinds of sin in the temple. And one night, the Lord calls out to a young lad and says, Samuel, Samuel. And informs him of what is to come, and that he's going to use Samuel to raise up, as it were, a, a remnant of righteousness. So each time we see that someone's name is used twice, it's with intentionality under inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, that there is a personal relationship here. There is a personal intentionality, and there is a personal plan for what's going on. We can see a few more examples that deal with just relationships among people. Elijah the prophet is nearing death. And his entourage knows that this is the case, especially Elisha, who was his mentee. And in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah is swept up to heaven in a great miracle. And Elijah sees it and cries out, my father, my father. And he sees the glory of God and he's given the promise that he is going to carry on the mantle of the prophet and carry on the work of God. I said there's 15 examples, we're not going to consider all of them, but let's just consider a few from the New Testament, where we see that to repeat someone's name implies a level of intimacy and knowledge, personal relationship. Jesus is confronted by a woman who is stressed out by the duties of hospitality, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about many things, only one thing is necessary being in intimate relationship with me. As Jesus is preparing the apostles for what is to come, he, he says in the upper room that one of them is going to betray them, and they, they go back and forth, who is it going to be? And Peter proudly says, it will never be me. And Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, Simon, the devil wants to sift you, and you will fall. But I've prayed for you so that when you return, you will be a leader, strengthen the believers. Show special affection, special interest in this one who was a primary leader in the early church. We'll only consider one more. But Jesus is on the cross, bearing the sin of his people, suffering to set them free. And after hours of agony, as the earth is plunged into darkness, he cries out, my God. My God. He knows that he has been an intimate, eternal experience of intimacy with the Father. He longs for that to continue. He knows something is happening. He, he at least feels abandoned as he's suffering for the atonement of the sins of his people. Now, as I said, there are 15 examples of this, but in each case, it is in the context of a personal and intimate relationship between people who know each other, whether it is the Lord who knows his people or between people themselves who intimately know each other. 
And this knowledge is not just knowledge about people. It is personal knowledge of people. It's as God is putting his hand of favor on his people, on his, his affection on the ones that he loves, and he calls them to himself. He knows them by name. Not just omniscience where he knows all things that are possible and all knowledge, but he knows them in an intimate, personal, even eternal way, loving way that he has for his own. So in this context then, when Jesus warns about those who say, Lord, Lord, they're making a claim to intimacy and personal knowledge, not just to his lordship, but they're making a claim that they know him, they're intimate with him, they have been in a relationship with him. And Jesus warns them and says, but not all who claim to be in the faith are truly in the faith. We like to be in control. Jesus takes away the control in this passage. He said, it is not those who claim this special relationship who will be in the kingdom. It is those who show they have this special relationship by the way they live their lives in obedience to the will of the Father. The ones who believe in the will of the Father, which is to believe in the Son and to follow him in this way of life, who will lead them all the way to the gates of heaven. The will of the Father is to believe in Jesus with a repentant heart that shows itself in fruitful obedience and joyful submission. And we do well to listen to the warning that not everyone who uses the title Lord, Lord is in fact in the Lord. Jesus said, beware of presumptuous knowledge, but also to be, beware of presumptuous works. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. They'll lay claim to a faith. They'll lay claim to what they have done. And they're going to protest the Lord's decision. They'll be surprised that they're not invited into the kingdom of heaven. And on that day refers to the final judgment. Where God is going to sort out everything for his glory. And it says that some will be surprised that they're not included in the celebration of heaven. And for them it will be too late. Too late to make changes, too late to repent, too late to turn away from what was secretly the truth all along. They were living for themselves. Don't let that creep up on you, my friends. Sin and rebellion are real. They're a real problem. And today is the day we deal with them. For today is the day of salvation. Today is the time of repentance. Jesus says that some are going to protest. And what will they lay their protest? What will they claim on what they have done, on their efforts, on their self-righteousness, on their work, not on what Jesus has done, not on who Jesus is? Lord, did we not have displays of power and works and service in your name? Three times they draw attention to his name. You can almost hear the comparison game going on as they look at their own lives, their own works, and compare them with others. They thought they did all these great things, at least in their own eyes. Jesus says, heed the warning. There are false signs, false displays of power, false works, false confessions of faith. And if we're feeling antsy at this point, that's a good thing. 
because that puts us in a humble position before God where we are needy, he provides, and all the glory goes to him. We might be tempted to say today, Lord, Lord, and then make a list of whatever ministries we were involved in. Serving in the nursery and teaching Sunday school or a building project or on and on it goes. Friends, hear the warning of Jesus that there is a form of religion that is of the flesh and is animated by human effort. The great John Wesley went out as a missionary from England to the growing colonies of the United States to be a missionary to American Indians for several years. And you know what he discovered? He wasn't converted himself. And when, when he met the Moravian brothers, he told them of a God who calls us to repent and to place our trust completely in Christ and his righteousness and his finished work. But he was saved and born again. He had cried out, I went to America to save the Indians, but who will save me? And the answer is Jesus Christ. I've heard of many stories over the years of those in various service ministries, pastors even, missionaries, who got into the ministry and then realized they themselves were not converted. That they were just doing religious exercises, trying to earn their own salvation. And I wonder how many people are in the church. I'm not talking just this church. I'm talking the church who are not truly converted, but who think they are because they look at what they've done. Their focus is in the wrong place. Their focus is in their position of influence instead of on the one who sits at the ultimate position of influence, the right hand of God, and who alone can forgive and redeem. Jesus says there are those who can live in such a way that their behavior and attitudes will betray their supposed confession of faith. Let that horror hang over your, your ears for just a moment and consider deeply the truth. We can't have presumption in the Lord. He literally has given us the way, the narrow way, the narrow gate upon which we need to walk and through which we need to go so that we will not hear a terrible declaration. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When you do uh, evangelism, when you teach people on apologetics, there are different types of people you can encounter. Those that are saved and, and know they're saved and understand the gospel and are showing the fruits of repentance. Those that are saved and who know they're not saved. Those who hope they are saved but not sure. But the most difficult ones are those who know they are saved but they're not. And helping them to see the truth of the matter. Jesus says, I never knew you. How many people are in danger with that. They think they're okay, but they're going to hear, depart from me instead. Because what matters is, does Jesus know you in a loving, eternal, saving manner? 
that his love and affection been poured out on you. He's the one who's the judge. Doesn't he say that here? Not everyone who says to me. He's the one that's the gatekeeper because he is the gate. He's the judge. Yes, in Christ, no longer any condemnation. Yes, in Christ, no longer any separation. Yes, in Christ, the most abundant, fruitful, joyful life we could ever have. But do you have it? Jesus says, I never knew you. The Knox translation captures it well. You were never friends of mine. I feel the weight of those words. Does Jesus know me? Friends, have you heard his call on your life? And did you listen? And did you come? And are you following? And is he the treasure of your life? Again, this is not knowledge about someone. This is knowledge of someone. Because the Lord knows all things. So this cannot mean that he does not know there are false prophets and false teachers. But all throughout the scriptures, knowledge takes on a personal feel personal affection, a personal knowledge that God places on his people. He chooses, he loves, he places his favor upon, and he calls. As Paul is writing to Timothy and preparing him for ministry in the, in the church, he said, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. He's in control. He's at the wheel. He's going to sit on the judgment throne. And Jesus said the same thing. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. That personal knowledge of God for his people and of his people is what empowers his people to grow in their love and affection for the Lord. Don't ever try to reverse it. God is still in control. But now listen to the whole verse, 2 Timothy 2, 9, 19. But God's foundation stands firm, a firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You see which comes first? The Lord knows his people. His affection is on his people and they show it how? By living out the will of the Father, by living out the righteousness that God requires, that they are empowered to do and now commanded to do. And they live out a life of obedience, not on their terms, on God's terms. Because true obedience is always willing to bend its knee before the Lord and his commands. Jesus said, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. It means that we're no longer our own. It's no longer our own way. It's always his way, which is the best way, because it's the narrow way that leads to his presence. To those who want to try to negotiate, who want to find the loophole, who think they've got a better plan, who think they can do it on themselves, they're going to hear these horrific words one day. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Imagine the horror one day standing in his presence and hearing, get out of my sight, I never knew you. Displays of signs and wonders are not a sure sign of God's blessing. 
The true test of maturity is obedience to the word of God and joyful service in his church. It's ongoing. It's growth. It's continuing. Jesus says, follow me. That's going with him. That's going forward. It's going onward. It's overcoming. It's having more victory. As I was preparing to go overseas, I had the privilege of serving in an African-American church for three months, listening to the pastor, getting to know the community, learning about how to share the gospel in different contexts. And I heard that sweet old Pastor Jacob say one day, Mr. Johnson went to church each and every Sunday, but Mr. Johnson went to hell for what he did on Monday. A renewed life will show it. A renewed life will be manifested in fruit showing the tree that it belongs to. What good will it do to perform good works if we're actually tearing down the work of God in the process? What good will it do to get our own way and miss the way? What good will it do to say, well, I did this, Lord, and I did that, and I did the other thing, and I was building up programs and projects when in the process I was tearing down people and tearing down relationships. God is building his church of the redeemed, of those that have been set apart for service. And we do well to listen to what Jesus has said this morning. Is your boast in Christ alone? Do you know Christ? And as importantly, if not more, does Christ know you? Are you growing in obedience this morning, in joyful service this morning? Do you say, Lord, Lord, and then do what he says? Do you hear his words and say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? The good news is this. Jesus challenges us with these truths, gets to the heart of the matter, because he knows he is the solution. And at every step, calls us come come to me come into my arms forsake your sin forsake your ways trust in my righteousness each time he calls which is every day for us to repent for us to confess our sins for us to trust him listen and do it and joyfully obey what he's given you to do and with ongoing obedience, you know what comes? Growing joy, growing fruitfulness, greater satisfaction in life, greater unity, growth, all the things that we aspire toward as we do it his way. What will you hear one day? Depart from me, I never knew you. Or well done, good and faithful servant. Next week, we're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to give one last example of those that are of the kingdom of heaven and those that are not, as he talks about two types of builders. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away? Because the fruit reveals the root, we will repent of our sins and trust in the Lord for our salvation. Because false teachers are in the church today, we will learn from the word how to discern truth from error. 
We need to be in the word. And the word needs to be in us. And that's hard work. And that's holy sweat. Knowing how serious it is to do the will of the Father, we will turn to him and his word for strength and wisdom and discernment. It really is all about him. But as I spoke to the men yesterday, I reminded them something that impacted my life 20 20 years or more ago. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so let's find our satisfaction in him. And lastly, because salvation depends on God knowing us, we will cry to him for mercy and depend upon him for growth and fruitfulness in our lives. That when we stand before him, amazed that we're in his presence, we will recognize that it's all because of him and we'll give him all the glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your wisdom and in your goodness, you led the Lord Jesus Christ not only to be our Savior and our Lord, but to be our truth teller. And I pray this morning, Father, as we have heard the words, and we check our own hearts, that we're not secretly trusting in things that we have done, but our dependency is completely upon you. And I pray that you would move us this week in our daily times in the Word of God, our daily times of quiet reflection and prayer with you, to repent and get real about our sin about who we really are and about who you really are so that we'd see how really great salvation is in Christ. We pray that you continue to instruct us on what that looks like, that holiness, that greater righteousness that we're called to. And may you ever turn us in loving dependence on Christ. And as we behold his beauty, with our hearts being captivated, and our minds enamored by his majesty and grace that all we want to do is please him. And in pleasing him, we will please you and we will be a blessing to those around us. Oh God, may it be. And we pray to that end for your glory and for our ultimate good. In Jesus' name, amen.